And again, good afternoon, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, live from Maui, Hawaii, where it's uh, just a bit after 10 in the morning. It's 1 o'clock on the West Coast, 4 o'clock Eastern, and I want to thank you all for joining us either by listening on the web or through the telephone. Again, before the event, we can talk to those of you on the phone. I was just talking to Bob in Pasadena there a little bit. Once we begin, we mute the callers. And uh, so it's a simulcast. You have your choice. You can always listen via the web, which is nice because you actually you could do both. But if you did, uh, know that there's an 18-second delay, about 18, 15 to 20-second delay. And uh, But the benefit of being on the web is you can type in a little question, say hi, give me your first name, your city, and just say hi or put in a question. I have a couple of questions this morning <clears throat> that came in before we started that I'm going to address briefly before we get into our topic today. Oh, good. Even more people coming on. That's great. Uh, and then we'll get to our topic of the day today. As most of you, I'm sure, know, we're uh, in the middle of a three-part uh, program. Again, I expect, with very few exceptions, to be here every Sunday, and you'll get an invitation emailed to you, usually on Friday, with a reminder on Sunday morning. Um, I may, I'm in Hawaii, so I don't know if we take vacations here or not. I, <laughs> there may be a week or two where I, where I do not do uh, a class. But we're in the middle of a special three-part series. Last week we talked about the oneness. A few people even consider that the word holy uh, is a reference to the totality of things, the oneness of things. And the problem that we discussed last week was that the language allows for a whole one, that which is unified, the nature of oneness as the totality of things. But there's also the separated one. And this one, or that one, or maybe that one over there. So you have a unitive one and a separative one. And this is where I'm going to pick up today. Then we'll talk about today, our primary theme will be the duality, the yin and the yang, or the polarities of all things. Certainly, uh, any even casual student of life and affairs has noticed this duality or polarity, the yin and yang of all things. The problem we'll discuss today is what happens when that becomes a list of two, and it appears as if we only have two choices in all things, and what's that about, where does that come from, and who manipulates us with that, who uh, is trying to limit our choices to only this or that, us or the evildoers, you know. And then next week we'll talk about the triune nature, the threefold nature of all things. There's a wonderful quote in the Tao Te Ching, which many of you know, written by Lao Tzu about 2,500 years ago. Um, actually, Lao Tzu was thought to be a contemporary of Confucius as well. Um, imagine the two most uh, important philosophers in the Chinese culture living at essentially the same time. And uh, it's also interesting to me, that's about the time Buddha lived, Pythagoras, Socrates, uh, 
Greeks were alive, about 500 B.C., about four or five centuries before the current era. These of us were all on the earth at the same time. And we're not sure if Lao Tzu was one person or many. It could have been a series of teachers. Um, nobody's really sure, but as if it were one guy, Lao Tzu, it really translates the sage or the teacher or the wise person. Uh, he wrote this remarkable book called The Tao Te Ching. And in that, he says, from the Tao, which is the flow of life, the primary stream or thread, the way, okay, from the Tao, spelled T-A-O but pronounced D-O-W, from the Tao comes the one, from the one comes the two, from the two comes the three, and the three, from the three come all things. Isn't that nice? Now, those of us exposed to Christianity here in the West, we're familiar with the so-called Trinity. Both Catholics and Protestants tend to believe in the Trinity. There is a group of Unitarians that don't like the idea of the Trinity, but it's sort of like I said in the newsletter, it's two minutes and one, like the old Certs TV commercial, Stop, You're Both Right. Uh, the Unitarians, you're right. There's just one thing at work. Trinitarians, you're right. <laughs> it has a threefold nature. So the oneness was last week, today the duality, next week the threefold nature. And uh, if you want to contemplate this further, I want to suggest that not now but later, go to my website at michaelbenner.com and click on the homepage button to go inside. And then choose on the tab on the left or all the navigation tabs. Choose the one that says Wisdom Nuggets. Wisdom Nuggets. And you'll see a list of uh, articles, one of which is an article called The One. There's another article called The Two or Duality. And then The Three, The Trinity. And uh, they're not long, but rich, especially the, the threeness of things which we'll talk about more next week. So uh, that's our issue for the day today. That's what we want to talk about uh, today. Uh, I'd like to pick up where we left off last week in talking about the fundamental paradox of the word one, meaning both the whole one, the holy one, the universe, the totality of all that is, the inclusive nature of all things, and contrast that against the use of the word one to mean a separative uh, one, this one or that one. Um, the problem that, that so many people have with this, religious people and others, is that they they believe in one God, that there's only one God. As I mentioned last week, even polytheistic religions like Hinduism that have hundreds or scores of gods nevertheless have a concept in Hinduism, it's called Brahman, of the totality of all things. At the end of the day, all religions and philosophies suggest that there's just one thing at work here, one mind at work, if you will, one heart at work one will okay but obviously it 
like light through a prism that breaks itself up into many forms. The problem that most people have is to, what would be the word, anthropomorphize, to personify the one into a creature or a being. The the dangerously, uh, dangerously simplistic idea that this one God is a man on a cloud and is separate as the creator from its creation stands outside and is very remote and very far away. Um, so picking up where we left off last week, I want to talk about the, if you will, the dual definitions of that which is most divine. You need at least two definitions and maybe more. Um, the first is the so-called transcendent definition, that the one is in um, all things that the one stands above all things and is like a container. Uh, what religious people or Christians call God, uh, what uh, our Jewish friends call Elohim or Yahweh or Jehovah, what Muslims call Allah, that which the Hindus refer to as Brahman or Brahma, Brahman actually. And uh, Buddhists don't use the word God at all. Um, is transcendent. That's the first definition. God transcendent or the one thing as a totality or a container, if you will, outside of which nothing could exist. So evil exists even within the one thing. That's a tough thing. That's a tough concept for a lot of people. Disease and problems exist within the one thing. The second definition that is just as important as the first is the idea of the most divine being also imminent, that is, within all things. And, again, in traditional mysticism, in the ageless wisdom, or perennial philosophy, both of these concepts are valid and true. And here we get our first hint of duality. Um, again, the idea that the most divine, the creative source, the supreme intelligence of all things is both transcendent and imminent. Imminent meaning not immanent, about to happen, but imminent meaning contained within. Both transcendent and imminent. Here's a nice, easy way to say it. Everything is in the one, that would be God transcendent, and the one is in every seemingly separated thing. And that would be the, the divine imminent. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I came across that concept, I did backflips. I thought, oh, my God, somebody intelligent has, has finally figured out that this paradox is at the, the heart and soul of the whole thing. It's really not paradoxical. It's just to the, to the most simple-minded, perhaps. But what a beautiful definition that both things are true. And let me, that's why it's called mysticism, because it's a big mystery. But work with that. Massage that a little bit. And see what you come up with, the idea that both things are true. And even then, the model of that which is most divine is largely speculation. Uh, but consider the transcendent and the imminent. The most divine, again, what Christians call God, 
is transcendent in it, that it's the regal big daddy, the super being that stands above and embraces all things, and also imminent, that is, within all of those seemingly separated things. One way this has been referred to across time is the one and the many. Okay, the one and the many. So now we move into the duality of things. The first aspect of duality that we need to talk about, besides that dual definition, is what I'll describe and what's often described in mysticism as a vertical duality, the one and the many, the creator and its creation. And we could say the creatures also, creator, creation, creatures, all the same root word. The creator and its creation, the one and the many. The eternal versus time, the infinite versus finite or space, you see. Um, the totality, the unified nature of all things, the one, and the many, apparently separated and clearly diverse and unique. This is very magical. This, again, it's referred to in mysticism often as a vertical alignment or a vertical access of God and man, the creator and its creation, the one, both transcendent and the imminent, and the many separated forms, unified on the top, diverse and apparently separated on the bottom. Okay. Having said that, there is also in the material world, on the bottom of that vertical polarity, that vertical bar magnet. Think of it as a bar magnet, and that will be more clear why I want you to think of it as a bar magnet in a minute or two. That vertical bar magnet, where the North Pole is the oneness of all things, the totality, and the South Pole of the bar magnet is the creation, the material world, the physical universe, and all of its apparently separated forms, and its diversity, not only separated, but diverse, okay, extremely diverse, rather than unified. So unified and separate. On the bottom end of that bar magnet, I want you to imagine another bar magnet, only this one is horizontal. And here we have the duality in form, the duality in the material world, starting with gender, if you wish, the male and the female. Or how about cause and effect, that every cause must have an effect and that you cannot have an effect without a cause. That is very fundamental to the way our universe works. And when things seem to happen for no reason, know that that's an appearance. There's always a cause or a reason behind an effect, and vice versa. Every cause must then have a result or an effect. There's a yin and a yang, a polarity, cause and effect, gender, male and female, but then we lay over that, right or wrong, good or bad, winners and losers. And now it gets really bizarre. How about everything or nothing? You're either with me or against me. And, and even worse, all differences are opposites. 
Now, the Rosicrucian, or pre-Christian, actually, we can go even before Rosicrucians, which is Christian mysticism, born largely in the Renaissance area four or five hundred years ago. But there, even in, in pre-Christian times, the cross was an important symbol uh, for the reasons that I've just uh, explained. The, the cross is, in a sense, two bar magnets, a vertical and a horizontal. Um, the vertical is the the God and man, the creator and its creation uh, that I talked about just a few minutes ago, the above and the below, the old Hermetic philosophy. Uh, you know, as it is above, so it is below, and as it is below, so it is above. This is the law of correspondence. That's your vertical creator creation the oneness of all things and it's it's all many diverse separated forms but then it has a horizon the material world has a horizon the horizontal bar magnet is the ebb and flow we're talking about in the material world the in-breath and the out-breath the cyclic round and round nature of all things including the most obvious gender winners and losers right and wrong but we've got to talk about the danger involved here uh, and let's use some tried and true examples is it conceivable to you that a, that a man or a woman could practice their chosen sport that, that, that an athlete could go to the Olympics and get a silver medal not the gold, but a silver medal or a bronze medal. Be the second or third best in the world in a given event and be a loser. Because they didn't win, and you say, well, they won, but what about the guy that came in fourth then? Imagine a person being the fourth fastest in the world or the fourth best high jumper or pole vaulter or long jumper, fourth in the world. There's only three people better than you, and you're a loser because you went home without a medal. This is the problem that we have, and we need to talk about fear if we're going to understand the way in which the natural polarity and duality of things in form becomes a prism and a list of two. It's one of the most maddening things to enlighten people and those that approach enlightenment to have to deal with the either-or nature of things, everything or nothing. You remember, this, this, this is how we're controlled through fear. Look, whenever we face real, clear and present danger or even imaginary danger, a perception that there may be some danger here, we tend to go into an automatic reflex in the middle of the brain, the limbic system, it's the animal brain, the lizard brain. We become reflexive, knee-jerk, either or, everything or nothing. You're, you know, dead or alive. You're either with us or against us. What did Bush say after 9-11? He's saying there is no middle. There is no middle. There is no third option or fourth choice or fifth possibility, you see. 
He's not encouraging people. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't think he could anyway. He's told largely what to say. But look at the promotion. You're either with us or the evildoers. You only have two choices. You're either right or you're wrong. You're either on our side or their side. See, the problem with either or thinking, a list of two is not a very long list, but it also creates so many problems. Now, you know, there's, what is it now, one in four, almost one in three, but certainly more than one in four people still support the Bush-Cheney administration in spite of what it's done to us in the world. That's difficult to comprehend. But one thing we can pretty much assume about these people is they've either cast their lot with these criminals or they're just confused by their fear and their stress. And they see such a thing as good torture. See, if there's only two ways anything can be, and we know we're not the bad guys, then we must be the good guys, and now we can do anything that we want. We can torture, but it's good torture at Abu Ghraib, see, because we're the good guys. We can drop bombs on villages and kill women and children and old men and non-combatants, innocent people, hundreds, thousands at a time, and that's unfortunate. That's collateral damage. That's, gosh, we didn't really mean to do that. We're really not terrorists. We know we're going to kill a bunch of people in war, and that's regrettable, but we're the good guys. You see. Our violence and our killing is a good thing. This is a long way from defend the helpless, right? The, the martial arts of defending those who are helpless. This is a kind of hegemony or imperialism where the United States flies halfway around the world and invades countries that are resource-rich, and then say, well, they're the bad guys, so that means we must be the good guys, because they're different. If we were exactly like them, (laughs) then we'd be them. But we're different from them, therefore we must be opposite. You see the danger? If all differences are opposites, then more fear is going to lock you into this fight or flight, either or, either fight or run. And Part of that whole mentality is to see the whole world as limited to duality. And yet I hasten to add, as I've already suggested, that certainly there is duality as polarity in the world. There is gender. There is vibration, for example. I mean, let's go to Einstein, the basic physics. There's only two things you have to work with, according to Einstein. You have energy and you have mass. There's light and there's matter. Okay, that's that's pretty much all you have to work with. So um, consider that the material world is a reflection of the spiritual world, that the the frozen light, so to speak, is uh, is the material world, and. Well, I go to Blavatsky. Blavatsky said it very well. She said, matter is light or energy vibrating at its lowest frequency. Light is matter vibrating at its highest frequency. But whether we call it energy, as in physics, or spirit, as in metaphysics, get this point. It vibrates. 
It has a yin and a yang. It has a peak and a trough. There's another fundamental duality in things. The vibratory nature of energy and matter. And if you know a little trig and you remember a little bit of your geometry, that up and down, back and forth over time is called a sine wave, S-I-N, a sine wave. And it has a peak, and then it crosses the x-axis, and it has a trough. And then it goes up, and it's really a cyclic nature. So everything has its seasons. Everything goes around. And we want to identify and recognize the tendency of the material world to be dual, and yet at the same time not get trapped into a belief that two are all the choices that we have. Again, that's, that is where the confusion comes in. And it's difficult to talk about this. You may want to come back and listen to the replay of this. Again, you may want to go to the website, michaelbenner.com, and go into Wisdom Nuggets and read the articles on the one, the two, and the three, just to get a little more clear in your own mind. Begin to talk to your friends about this. Okay, These polarities are natural and normal. Uh, we have to remind ourselves when we disagree with people that we're not necessarily the opposite just because we disagree. I might agree with you on 90% of things or take one particular topic where I agree with you in almost everything. 90% of what you're saying I'm totally on board with. But this other area where we disagree, can you see how depending on your emotional investment and your overall level of anxiety, we lose track of the fact that we agree in 90%, look only at the 10% where there is disagreement, and rather than seek to understand and be curious about those differences, we get polarized. We go polar. We argue as if the other person is now the enemy and needs to be made wrong in order for us to be right. The idea that we could both be right is a concept that most people are not familiar with. It's an aspect of, well, critical thinking that is not taught in school. I agree with you 90% of the way. But this other 10%, we have some disagreement. That doesn't make us enemies. I don't have to kill you or eliminate you <laughs> or defeat you in an argument in order to make my point. In fact, as we discuss in future events, relationships and communicating in relationship, you're going to learn that acknowledging the other person's point of view is really the best way to get them to acknowledge your different point of view so that we can both see some relative merit in each other's point of view. And as I said in the newsletter that invited you here today, the idea of the absolute and the relative is another way of describing that vertical bar magnet, that, that in the material world there is no absolute truth. Everything in the world is relatively true, a matter of degree. And what we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about the triune nature of things. But let's go back to that cross, that pre-Christian cross, the vertical bar magnet of the above and the below, 
the vertical of God and man, the creator and its creation. Okay, the one unified and the many diversified. And then the horizontal member of that cross. And sometimes in symbolism there's more than one, isn't there? Have you ever seen a cross where there are two horizons or three horizons? Notice that the higher the horizontal member, the narrower it is. This is where we bring in the pendulum. And it's a really rich, ancient concept that it's sort of like putting the it's sort of like swinging the cross so to speak if most simply we just think of that vertical member of the cross the alignment of the creator and its creation the one and the many as being this pendulum and then you begin to swing it left and right notice that the top of the pendulum is fixed this is in many ways a better model than the cross. The top of the pendulum is fixed. It's unmoving. It's unified. It's not going anyplace because there's no place to go. Remember in geometry they taught us that a point takes up no space. It's just a location on a, uh, on a grid, two-dimensional, three-dimensional grid. A point is just a location. It takes up no space. So, all of the power that the pendulum swinging comes from this fixed, unmoving point at the top. The bottom, on the other hand, has its polarity. The bottom of the pendulum swings back and forth, left and right. Okay, And here you get the good and the bad and the winners and the losers and the rightness and wrongness and things. And that's a very rich allegory. It allows you to see that here in this one thing, this pendulum, this ought to help Unitarians and Trinitarians resolve their argument. Here we have in this pendulum this beautiful ancient image, this very real thing that anybody could make. This is one of the reasons pendulums are so revered for scrying and and, uh, divination and such also. The top of the pendulum is fixed, representing the oneness of things, the totality of things. But as it expresses itself in separated material form, you've got the polarities of yin and yang, the positive and the negative, the ebb and the flow. For those of you who are a little more advanced, I'm going to suggest that this horizontal bar magnet is really two horizontal bar magnets that are negative on the uh, outside, the extremes, and positive in the middle. Uh, I don't want to get into this too deeply right now. It's just that in the the simplest sense, the bottom of the pendulum could be good and bad, okay, winners and losers, right and wrong. But actually we find as we get a little more advanced into this model that the good, the right, The appropriate is actually in the middle, and the extremes are to be avoided. It's like a football field. If you think of the swing of the pendulum as being a football field, most people are living in the end zones, everything or nothing. Are you a conservative or a liberal? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you with me or are you against me? Everything or nothing, 
all differences are opposites. What madness to have no choice. Next week we'll pick this up and talk about the Trinity by describing the middle way, the third way, which is not just the 50-yard line, but the whole playing field between the end zones. The full swing of the pendulum is the third way that breaks the two into a three. So most poor fools are living in the end zones trying to play the game at the extreme of things. It's, it's, as I said in the reminder that went out this morning, it's as if our whole lives are reduced from, from essay and multiple choice to a series of true or false exams. And isn't it maddening? Doesn't it drive you crazy? To have to remind people, well, wait a minute, hold on here. Maybe there's a third way. To understand things through bifurcation, that's, that's another term you should know. Bifurcation means simply to divide things into two. Hey, Joe, you coming with us or are you going to stay? All right. That makes sense. But if you say, do you want fish or chicken, that's not enough. You know, you might say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vegan. I just, <laughs> I just want some vegetables. Or can a guy get a burger over here? What do you mean fish or chicken, you see? So to divide things into two, to bifurcate, um, makes perfect sense. It's a great place to begin to understand the tendency to be in a set or outside of a set, in the set or not in the set. And again, it reflects this duality, this polarity that is intrinsic to the material world. Just be careful that you don't get, through fear and anxiety, caught up in believing that a list of two is all you need. And that any variation, any permutation, or any combination is in opposition to you. Variations and permutations and combinations are the football field between the end zones. The whole middle, not just the 50-yard line, but from this goalpost to that goalpost, that's the middle. And that's where the fun is. That's where the truth is found. That's where goodness is found. That's where peace and love and harmony is found. It's called the middle way or the third way or the mystic's path. It's represented by the caduceus and the magic wand and the wizard's staff. And These models are so very, very important. So let's, just as we discussed the oneness of things last week, this week we have to consider the duality of things as natural, as polarities. But at the same time, be smart enough, wise enough, and most importantly, safe and relaxed enough that your consciousness opens from fight or flight to the possibilities of all things. Okay. Finally, before we go to the questions, let me remind you of the two examples I put in the newsletter of, first of all, two sides of a coin. A coin has two very different sides. You could even say opposites. But they're not in opposition. They don't oppose each other, heads and tails. 
they are inseparable parts of one coin. So for something to have two sides, essentially a yin and a yang, polarities, uh, an ebb and a flow, the swing of the pendulum, doesn't mean that one opposes the other, except in the most limited way. Certainly the head side of the coin and the tail side of the coin don't oppose each other. They're opposites in one sense, but see them as inseparable sides of the same coin, which, by the way, also has an edge. That would be your, your three. And then to go back to the bar magnet again, and this hits at the three. We have the, the, the positive charge of the north pole of the magnet, the bar magnet, the negative so-called charge of the south pole of the bar magnet, and yet they're not in opposition to each other. You see, they they are part of one bar magnet and even further part of one unified electromagnetic field. You might remember in school when you sprinkled the iron filings on the piece of paper and shook it gently over the bar magnet, those iron filings aligned themselves with the magnetic field. This is the third element. This is the middle way, the magnetic field that unifies what might appear to be opposite poles, they are opposite poles, but they're not in opposition. They're unified into one whole thing by the magnetic field. That's the third element, that magnetic field. Okay, uh, And that's what we'll talk about next week when we get into the triune nature, the threefold or um, the trinity, if you will, in all things. Now, don't, again, don't expect most Christians or Catholics to know this or understand this. In fact, even your priests and your ministers and your rabbis are not real clear on this idea of the threefold nature of all things. So there is a one, there is a duality, there is a trinity. Certain philosophies go even further, like in theosophy, for example, there is a seven-ray system, that that which is most divine emanates in seven colors or seven musical notes or seven streams of energy. But even then, the first three are primary. Will, love, and intelligence. Father, Son, Mother aspect. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this next week, and I think you really like it a lot. Uh... Let me go, well, let me do a time check. Uh, it's 40 minutes after the hour, and I'm looking at the questions that you've submitted. Betty in Hermosa Beach has a question just about Bush and, and the uh, fascist nature of our government and uh, corruption and injustice. I'd like to come back to that if I have time and stay on topic a little bit. Uh, Vicki in Long Beach wants to know about procrastination. I'd like to come back to that if we have time. Scott in Ventura, is it possible the idea of God is just the last passive-aggressive act of ego trying to find a way to get what it wants? Uh, that is, uh, for example, prayer fulfilled and so on. Yes, of course it's possible, Scott. There's no question about it. Except, and we'll do this, we'll study this. Here's the challenge to you, sir. 
uh, you have to consider the possibility that ego invents not only itself but all other concepts. But if we could transcend the ego and still exist, if we could master the ego, if we could recognize the ego as a part of who we are that has a responsibility for protecting and defending what appears to be our separate nature, okay, then we would have to say, well, maybe there's more to me than what appears to be, more than that reflection in the mirror, more than this physical body, this sack of protoplasm. And indeed, with mindful meditation, with detachment, you can look at the ego without being the ego. Indeed, ego death is central to mysticism. But it's a very complex subject. We will talk about it. Uh, there's no question that this higher self can be, uh, how can I say this, that the ego can disguise itself as the enlightened self, that the ego can dress up like the soul. Uh, we see this. We see this happening. Uh, a spiritual master who calls himself a master, for example, <laughs> excuse me, there's an ancient wisdom that those who say don't know, and those who know don't say. So if somebody's out there calling himself a master, or herself, seems to be a guy thing, doesn't it? Himself some sort of master, well, they couldn't possibly be. That would have to be the ego, right? Um, <laughs> if you really, on the other hand, if you really were a master, who would you have to tell? Why would you tell anybody? So, again, are we into another dichotomy here, another polarity? Well, actually, we're into discussing the second and third aspects of the Trinity. And we'll talk more about that next week and in future weeks. But, of course, you have to consider the possibility that we made up this whole thing we have, uh, that ego just... What is, wasn't it a Voltaire that said if God did not exist, we'd have to invent it? Definitely consider that possibility. Never, uh, well, let's see, how can I say this? Be careful of words like never. Um, I just think it's important that we explore, that we be faithful enough to explore all challenges to our faith. And, the idea that this is just made up has to be looked at, made up by the ego, by the part of us that identifies with the mortal temporal self. Very good question. Thank you. John in Pittsburgh says aloha. I'm back at you, John. Out of uh, Pittsburgh also, Marcy. Hello, Michael. Oh, this is John the mom. Hello, Marcy. And uh, in Moorpark, Jennifer. Oh, gosh. You want me to share this, Jennifer? Yeah, we don't know who you are. And I think we've all felt this way at times. Listen to this, you guys. Listen to Jennifer. I hate my life. It sucks. I listen, and I've been listening to various metaphysical or spiritual teachings for years. I have no money and feel like I don't deserve money due to a horrid childhood. How do I manifest money? So I can do things I want to do, simple things like buy the right food to eat and purchase the proper 
supplements and vitamins that I should be taking. I, I don't have the funds to even do those simple things. I try affirmations, visualization, etc., etc. But then I look around and it's all the same old stuff. Everything remains the same. I never seem to move forward. How do I provide for myself the kind of life that I see others having and would like to have too? Thank you, Michael. God bless. Isn't that beautiful? Well, first of all, Jennifer, the best thing about what you've said is that you have the courage to say it. And you may not have money, but you got fortitude. you got courage. You have an inordinate strength. I mean, here you are. Here you are listening still. Because there's some part of you inside that finds validity here. In other words, and this really is the realm of psychotherapy and counseling, and I don't mention it much, but I do this over the phone. I, I do private counseling by appointment over the phone. And there's a telephone number on my website that you can use. It's also in the emailed invitations. It's voicemail 24-7. You can leave me a message, and I'll, I'll call you back, and we'll talk about setting something up, or we can take the time necessary. I you know, the, the the danger in responding to you is that it's not going to be sufficient. There's no way that I can give you an adequate response. But having said that, I'd like to direct you toward that little spark inside that caused you to write this, that is indignant and angry and upset at, at your life. And I would suspect the injustice that you see around you as well. Now, are you the person that doesn't have the money and can't buy the food and the supplements that you would like to buy and live the kind of free life that that you deserve? Are you that? Yes, of course you are to some degree. But are you not also the one who continues to hope? And there is always hope, the one that that is outraged, the one that is indignant, the one that wants to stand up and scream and shout. It's sort of like, you know, when people come to me with guilt or shame, for example, this is a parallel. I say, well, are you the one that has been shamed, or are you the one that is ashamed? I mean, are you the one that did this horrible thing that makes you feel guilty, or are you more the one that feels true contrition and has learned and is not going to go there again. And I think in both cases it would have to be the latter. So are you this impoverished person that is not making enough money and is not getting along? Or are you the one that's indignant and outraged at the injustice in the world? You see? And I think both things are true. You are that and more. Both of those things, though paradoxical and somewhat, somewhat contradictory. But put the emphasis on, I'm the one that's indignant. I'm righteously indignant. I am becoming increasingly intolerant of a world that suffers gross injustice and my neighbors who seem so willing to tolerate that injustice, to look the other way. And to just keep pumping gas at $4 a gallon, uh, 
I remember thinking just a few months ago it would never get this high. Hell, it could be 10 or $20 a gallon. These guys are pirates. And you all know, everybody on this call certainly knows, this stuff is not market-driven. When you have six suppliers in the world, it's it's not a free, free market. These prices are not market-driven. Be the one that's outraged. Be the one that's upset. And use your pain and your your uh, frustrations to better understand yourself. And that's a good place to begin. Then what you need to do to find out who you are and what you're for in a commercial way, to go out into the world and earn money and live, that has to stand upon a deeper understanding of who am I really. And am I here on this earth to earn money? I mean, we've all got to eat. Uh, I got a nice big piece of land here. I'm looking at, at at putting the garden in over here. You know, what did I just pay? Um, oh, uh, summer squash was uh, seven ninety nine a pound at the market the other day. Eight dollars a pound for summer squash. Now I can I can stick in a plant and get a whole bunch of summer squash for next to nothing. And even you know people that live in the city. Uh, you can garden on your balcony in pots. Uh, every little bit helps. And so you can grow some of that food. Vitamins and supplements? No, you can't grow that. But it's just a, a, a fundamental shift that we need to make. And again, this is really therapy quality, personal stuff. But I'm addressing it because you know, we all feel this way from time to time. And uh, I don't know if you know fabulously wealthy people, but they are not free of this. Fabulously wealthy people can spend as much or more time than impoverished people worrying about losing their money. And uh, there just doesn't seem to be much escape from that. I'd love to go longer with you on that, but I think that's about all I'm going to say for now about that idea. And thank you so much for being here this afternoon. I hope you continue. Scott you know. Ventura says, uh, doesn't it seem that duality is always concerned with results-oriented spirituality that rests on a belief in God as separate so as to have a means to get what you want and to bend others to what you want? Could Tatvam Asi, which means you are that, could that mean that you are ego and ego creates God? Is this Scott that asked the other question? Wait a minute. Yeah, this is Scott coming back at me. Remember he said maybe ego invents God, so he's coming back here. Could it be that ego creates God so that it still has a passive-aggressive way to get what it wants? Is God the last manipulative illusion of the ego, which stands in your way of seeing what is, to see God? He must be killed. That's a very that yeah, of course. <laughs> I gotta uh, uh, concede once again the possibility, and encourage you to continue to look at that. In fact, that's part of philosophy of the ageless wisdom. If you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> you know, any image of God in a sense is idolatry. That's the problem with the approach. Uh, the old Jewish mystics had a great term uh, for God, which was impronounceable. Uh, 
they used a four-letter word that had no vowels. I don't know if you're aware of it, but if you've ever thought of it, but there are words without vowels cannot be pronounced. You need a vowel. In fact, uh, well, there's only four or five of them. What, what, A, E, I, O, U, and Y sometimes. So I guess five or six vowels. Those are the God sounds because you have to have vowels to make sounds. Consonants alone are not enough. And singers always know that the vowels are the notes you hold. You can't hold a note with a consonant in it, only with a vowel. Pretty cool, huh? So what did the old mystics do? The ancient rabbis named God an impronounceable name, I-H-V-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Sometimes it's Y-H-V-H, depending on the translation from from the Hebrew. But it's the idea is it's supposed to be an impronounceable uh, reference to uh, the one about whom nothing may be said, the one about whom naught may be said. Right. Um, this is wisdom. When we begin to talk about God, as if we could understand the incomprehensible, if we could, as if we could know the unknown, it's a very, very uh, hazardous game that we play. And I think to temper it with your concern, Scott, is very, very smart. Very smart. And Carolyn Lahabra checking in, and uh, Carol just saying hi. Thanks for checking in. Okay, it's about uh, five minutes before the top of the hour, so at this point I start looking at wrapping it up. I do want to go back here and touch on Vicky and Betty's questions real quickly. Uh, these came in even before the event today. Uh, Vicky in Long Beach wants to know about procrastination and how to get her house cleaned up. She says it's been months. And every day I say I'm going to do it today, but I never do. I wake up and feel bummed out that I'm in this mess, but I do nothing. It happened again today. I have nobody to help me. I live alone, and my home is a mess. A couple of things to look at. Again, this is therapy quality, personal counseling quality stuff. I'm happy to address it here, uh, but there's only so much I can do without you and I sitting one-on-one over the telephone and uh And yet, there's a couple of clues in here. The first thing about procrastination you always have to look at is, do I come from a childhood where I was criticized? Were one or both of my parents critical? And if not critical, just hard to please? Lots of times people will say, oh, my parents loved me, and they never criticized me. But their idea of parenting was to always want more. And you never really got the award or reward that you needed. You know, you come home with four A's and a B plus, and they go crazy. What is this B plus? Why does it have an A? You're so smart, and I'm so proud of you, and you ought to be getting all A's, and they never get to win. So whether you're criticized or your parents are just hard to please, or maybe it was a sibling or a bully up the block or a school teacher that criticized us, this is where procrastination and perfectionism also are often bound up. In a child, 
trying to please an adult that remains unpleasable because they think that's what parenting is, and then we get stuck in that and continue as adults trying to please other people to earn through that emotional dependence, that codependence, the approval and acceptance that we don't know how to bestow upon ourselves. Okay. Now, if you know your bust is never good enough, then that's a good reason to, to procrastinate. Why even bother? Whether it's finishing or even getting started. There, you know, you can procrastinate where you get almost done and then you never finish. You can also procrastinate by never even starting. Because what's the point? It won't be good enough. Why clean up this house? It's just going to get messy again. There may be a certain truth to that. Maybe the standard that was put upon you as a child of what a clean house looks like is something you might want to modify a little bit. Maybe that lived-in look is you. But there's another clue in here. You also say, I have nobody to help me. I live alone. And my home's a mess. Well, we got that part. But I have nobody to help me. I live alone. The procrastination here might be, don't know, but I'd suggest you take a look at it, a kind of regret or resentment and anger that you are alone, a frustration that there's nobody here to help me. And, uh, again, it's a form of codependence. This is the most common source of stress there is, by the way, anxiety and fear. I know of no other source other than clear and present danger of stress that is as big as emotional dependence, needing other people to love you, needing other people to, and again, that's a groovy thing, you know, it's wonderful that people love us, but to know that you're lovable without that is a challenge to all of us. It's as fundamental as the question that Scott was asking about how do I know it's not just my ego. When it comes to loving yourself, you can ask the same thing Scott asked. How do I know I'm not just BSing me? <laughs> Maybe I'm not lovable. This is where the meditation and the mindfulness comes in and why I want to do it. And Betty from Hermosa Beach, well, Betty is pissed. And I don't blame her. I go through this every day. She's talking about politics here. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a little long. But how do we fear? How, how do we deal with the fear? She says, and the frustration that nothing is being done about, well, what I'll call corruption in society. She's talking about the elite group of people that run the world. She says, want to run the world, Betty. I think they already do, and have for some time. And yeah, I know about Rex '84, and that goes back to the Reagan era. And it's possible that Bush could suspend the elections this fall. Um, there's all kinds of nefarious possibilities here that we have to consider. Uh, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with the insanity of the world? How do we deal with the fears, the prices of the most fundamental things go up? I mean, many things are still very cheap and affordable, but it's the things that we need the most where the inflation is the greatest. Food, energy, housing. And the best thing we can do is try to be as 
first of all, self-reliant as possible. I talked about growing a little bit of food, uh, harvesting your own energy, um, doing whatever you can to get off the grid, to minimize your uh, participation in a corrupt system. Now, again, just as our lesson today says, avoid the end zones, avoid the extremes of everything or nothing. I'm not saying that you either buy into the system or you go back to the 19th century with kerosene lamps and a horse and buggy. There's appropriate technology. You could use a windmill to charge a battery to run a computer, you see, low-tech and high-tech all blended in together. Uh, so that's the first thing that we have to consider. But the second thing, to anybody that is spiritual, we have to consider why is the world this way? Well, because we imagine it to be this way. Who does? Not me, you say. I didn't cook this up. This, <laughs> this is not my idea. No, it's the idea of a handful of pirates. And the world's always been run by violent, brutal men. Pirates, robber barons, those that plunder and rape and steal. But we have to go beyond identifying those individuals to looking at what drives them. Greed, you say, a lust for power. Yes, but on a deeper level, what drives them? And it's fear. It's hard to think of greedy, rich, powerful megalomaniacs like Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, take your pick, or Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini. It's hard to think of these people as frightened. But the truth is, they're terrified. Because they're not spiritual. They live in a material world as if that's all there is. And they may be deluded, like Bush thinking that God chose him to be the president, and God chose him to steal Iraq's oil. All right? Or Hagee, you know, calling Catholics the great whore, while being such a good ally to Israel. Why? Because when Christ comes back, all those Jews are going to be converted to Hagee's vision of revelation. I mean, it's fear, it's ignorance at the bottom of it all. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be a, a sufficient insight to carry you through a, a funky day where you're just really angry. But it's a place to begin, and then to follow up on that by taking some action. You know, all of us want to do more than we're able to do, but to accept that, you know, great things are accomplished with little steps. Do little things, Betty. Uh, share your knowledge. Teach people who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Uh, I don't know you, and you're probably very charitable and philanthropic, but uh, a reminder to all of us that one way to, to vent our anger and frustration and cruelty and injustice is to address injustice with a sense of justice and cruelty with a sense of peace, working for peace and justice in your life, and hope that that emanates out. You know, Gandhi said, be the peace that you wish to see in the world. Let's find the Dick Cheney in us 
again, I, I hope I'm not insulting you. I'm, I'm including me in this. The frightened George Bush inside of me. The megalomaniac that sometimes wants power. And find that in us and heal that in us. And then with your passions and compassions, go out into the world and share in any way possible. One-on-one over a cup of coffee is a way to change the world. But start with yourself. Let's find the dark, frightened places in us and heal the fear in us that we can be courageous and go out into the world as beacons of light, of hope, of the the power of love as consciousness, not just emotional hugs and and embraces. That's that's wonderful, that kind of love. But there is charitable love. There is the love of seeing yourself in another person, uh, rich and poor, um, and the spiritual in all things. To to love your enemies, you see, is is a, a daily challenge. It really is. But I honor your anger. I respect your righteous indignation. You and Vicki and everybody else. You know, most of you know of me initially because of KPFK. And uh, that's really all I can say about that right now. But thanks. Seven minutes after the hour, let's do a quick meditation on our topic du jour, which is duality. You'll close your eyes. Hopefully you're in a place where you can. Close your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. And relax. From the top of your head to the soles of your feet, get comfortable. Align yourself, but don't feel that that you need to be rigid or erect. In fact, balanced and centered. Imagine yourself sitting receptive and open, feeling very safe and very relaxed. Take another slow, deep breath, pulling in strength and power as you inhale and ah, as you exhale. Feel the letting go in your body. And imagine yourself softening like butter on a warm day. Feel the letting go in your body. Drop your guard. Lower your defenses. In five or ten minutes, you can have all the tension you want. But see if for the next five to ten minutes, you can let go of all of that and really feel safe and and relaxed. And even visualize yourself in your mind's eye in a beautiful paradise, an Eden, a beautiful garden, and go there. And find a place to sit. Maybe you're in the sun on a on a warm but not too hot day. Maybe you're in a underneath a shade tree, or maybe you're in a cool forested place. And allow my voice to go with you, but you can hear birds singing in the wind and the trees smell the fragrances as you sit upon the earth, maybe beside some water, a little stream or a pond. And as you sit there, I want you to passively 
just allow, gently guide without any real effort at all. Allow yourself to go with me, to come with me. As we consider the duality, the polarity, the two-ness of things. Consider the ebb and the flow of your own breathing. You may wish to put your attention gently on the bottom of your nose. And without causing yourself to breathe in any way, simply relax and watch, witness the natural ebb and flow of your body breathing itself. Of the in-breath and the out-breath. Consider that you're breathing when it's done for you by autopilot is not unlike the waves at the shore of the ocean rolling in, crashing on the beach and as you exhale, imagine the water flowing back down the sand and into the ocean and as your body inhales here comes another wave that crashes and as you exhale the water is drained into the ocean. And so, rather than think of the duality here as either or, see it as part of a cycle. The in-breath and the out-breath of the ocean. Watch the ocean breathing. Just watch the ocean breathe. Consider the tides, the effect that the moon and the sun have on the ocean itself that ebb and flow over a much longer period of the tides. The in-breath and the out-breath. To everything, there is a season round and round think of it as four seasons, spring and summer and autumn and winter, or simply the duality, the peak, the longest day of the year, and the trough, the shortest day of the year. Do you see the experience, feel the duality in everything that is cyclic, the breath of the seasons? as they go around and around, as the earth spins on its axis around, as that spinning earth circles the sun around and around. Either or, duality, polarities, is a rhythm and while time may ultimately be an illusion, the idea that there's a past and a future rhythm is very real. Rhythm, the, the period or the cyclic nature of all things, the in-breath and the out-breath, even history has its high points and its low points. And within history, 
a multiplicity of peaks and valleys, of high times and low times. As all things cycle, this is the nature of things. And as I quoted earlier today, the Tao Te Ching, from the one, or it actually begins with, from the Tao comes the one. And from the one comes the two. The one thing breathes and cycles. And from the two comes the three. And from the three come all things. The two has to have a middle. It's not an either-or. It's the swing of the pendulum. It's the in-breath and the out-breath. Two reflects bifurcation and a natural duality. It's very real, but be not limited to the duality or the polarity. Look for the heart and soul, the middle, the edge of the coin, the magnetic field that unifies what appear to be opposite polarities, not in opposition, but actually complementary parts of one whole thing. Consider the third element, the heart and the soul, the sun, the Vishnu, the wisdom, the soul. Next week we'll talk about the third element in this little three-week package. You can't have a two without a three. Now in a minute I'm going to ask you to Open your eyes, take your time to reorient yourself, and I'd like you to spend some time today and tomorrow and until we meet again next week looking for the duality of things in nature, the cyclic round and round nature of all things. And at the same time, see how dangerously limiting a list of two and either or the idea that differences are in opposition and one is always good and the other is bad why can there not be differences that are both good variations and permutations and combinations that are relatively true that somebody that you care about deeply love passionately can disagree with you and you with them and still honor the harmony in the relationship disagreement doesn't mean opposition unless you're stressed and anxious and in danger come to the peaceful place to see polarity as cyclic a perpetual rhythm around and around the highs and the lows the in-breath and the out-breath, the yin and the yang. But be careful. Be not trapped by the belief that any difference must be an opposite and that there's only two ways things can be. Great lessons. Look for that in your life. Watch for that in your rhetoric, your discussions. Talk to others. Share your insight. Allow yourself to find it difficult, I find it difficult to stumble 
so few people are conversant on a topic like this. So allow for that. Ask questions. You don't have to be the master teacher. Ask questions of your friends. Have they ever thought of this or that? What about the third way? Very important in philosophy. The middle way. Not just the 50-yard line, but the whole swing of the pendulum, the whole playing field. But there ain't nothing happening in the end zones. Nothing going on in the extremes. Be not extreme. Be moderate. Moderation in everything in the middle way. Balance. Centered. The breath itself. <laughs> and I'd like you to take one more nice, slow, deep breath. Pulling in strength and power. And as you exhale, feel the letting go. And as it feels appropriate, open your eyes, wide awake and alert, back in the room in which you sit, feeling fine, rested, refreshed, maybe a little confused as you wrestle with these ideas of polarity, the yin and the yang of all things. Hey, thanks for listening and uh, tuning in and, and being with us here on the uh, uh, mystery school call today really appreciate it uh, watch for the invitations forward them to your friends and then call your friends and say what did you think of that class today what did you think of those concepts what did you think about what Michael said or those questions that were asked you'll have somebody to share it with if you forward those emails and get your friends to go to the website and sign up all you have to do is go to michaelbenner.com and there's a big button, free newsletter on the splash page. And uh, also want to remind you to check out our paid podcast that Steve and I do, really exciting stuff, less esoteric, more in the personal development field. Uh, it's called Finding Yourself in Paradise, and if you use the button in the lower right of the page you're looking at, where it says Wage Inner Peace Now, check that out. We'd love for you to come on board with the people that are listening to our premium podcast. This is a premium podcast for just 99 cents a week, 3.96 a month. And you can sample it, subscribe. Uh, also below the button, Wage Inner Peace Now, are some links to my website, to the newsletter archive, and uh, also my profile at LinkedIn. Okay. And... Uh, Again, you'll find my telephone number on the website if you want to talk to me about some private telephone counseling, coaching, and mentoring. I'd be happy to help you with that. Invest in yourself. Okay, It's a great investment. I can't think of any investment that pays more dividends than to invest in yourself and your understanding of who you are. It's uh, it's one investment that is guaranteed to pay off again and again. I, I'm not so sh sure about the security in the stock market. I'm not so sure about the security of putting money in the bank. Um, certainly there is no national security in war and violence. But if security means self-care, then love yourself, care for yourself, and find security in understanding yourself better. You know, I, I left journalism in 1987. I left radio to do this. And I would much rather talk one-on-one -on -one and 
help people discover the truth of who they are and develop that truth uh, than simply talk to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people at once, but they listen, nothing ever really changes. That's one of the reasons I left radio to do this. So, hey, thanks again for being here. I'd love to get some email from you, too, just mb at michaelbenner.com, my initials and my name, mb at michaelbenner.com. I'll write you back. Thanks again for being with us today. Join us next Sunday for our regular event, 1 o'clock West Coast time every Sunday afternoon. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha.